Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to take a look at the music of Georg Philipp Telemann, a composer with whom Bach was acquainted and whose music he admired. Today, the first of two episodes about the composer, we're going to focus on Telemann's vocal and choral music. I'm going to provide only the briefest biographical sketch for Telemann for this episode, but I'll also mention some other places you might look for further information. He was born in 1681 in Madeburg, the child of a clergyman father and a mother who was the daughter of a clergyman, both of whom derived from an upper-middle-class background. There were a few earlier musicians and composers in their lineage, but there was no consistent family tradition in music as there had been with the Bach clan. In his youth, Georg was provided with a solid education, including some Greek and Latin, and an introduction to German literature. He had some exposure to music through singing lessons with a local cantor and, briefly, keyboard lessons with a local organist. But by and large, Telemann's early investigations were self-directed, teaching himself violin, recorder, and zither. Like Bach, he acquired musical knowledge largely through the study of scores and was soon inspired to make some compositional attempts of his own, writing arias, motets, and instrumental pieces. Telemann describes in his three autobiographical statements how he even tried his hand at an opera at the age of 12, which was eventually performed locally to some acclaim in Madeburg, where he was attending school. His father having passed away, Georg's mother, in a circumstance familiar to a number of budding musicians then and probably now, discouraged him from pursuing music as a profession, and he was sent in 1693 or early 1694 to Zellerfeld for his continuing education. But his primary teacher in the new institution was also interested in music and, with his encouragement, Telemann continued to compose, writing motets for the local church and various instrumental pieces for the local town musicians. Soon, Telemann's natural talent as a composer became more widely recognized as Georg attempted to expand his resources with a study of French music to go along with the Italian and German music he already so admired. And to increase his knowledge of more applied musical matters, he made a study of several new instruments, flute, oboe, shalomo, a precursor of the clarinet, viola da gamba, double bass, and even bass trombone. In 1701, Telemann entered Leipzig University intending to study law, in part to please his mother and in part to acquire the university education he had long desired. But before long, music managed to seduce him away from his professional ambitions, and Telemann was once again producing compositions for two local churches. He also revived the Moribund Collegium Musicum in Leipzig, for which Bach was later to compose many of his most attractive instrumental works, and Georg even became involved in opera. Telemann later reported that he had written over 20 operas, many to his own librettos for Leipzig, including some in which he also performed as a singer. In 1705, Telemann left Leipzig to become Kapellmeister to Count Erdmann II at Sorau, where he came into contact with Polish and Moravian folk music, both of which he later claimed as influences, although the nature of that influence is, in general, difficult to pinpoint. By 1708, he had entered the service of Duke Johann Wilhelm of Saxe-Eisenach, where he composed a great deal of vocal music, 
and a number of concertos for the court orchestra, and where he became friends with J.S. Bach, eventually becoming godfather to Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. But Telemann once again grew restless and moved in 1712 to Frankfurt, where he accepted the position of city director of music and kapellmeister for two local churches. As usual, Telemann did not restrict his musical activities to his official ones, and also revived the Collegium Musicum in Frankfurt and served in other capacities as well. Ever prolific, in fact considered one of the most prolific composers in history, Telemann wrote multiple cycles of church cantatas and self-published four collections of instrumental music. In 1721, Telemann moved to Hamburg, where he became music director to the city's five main churches, which he provided with copious amounts of music, cantatas and oratorios, along with some secular works. He also directed a Collegium Musicum in Hamburg and became involved again with the production of local operas, both activities being greeted with some suspicion by the local church authorities. When Johann Kuhnau, a former colleague in Leipzig, passed away in 1722, Telemann applied for that vacant position, and, although the town council's first choice, he did not accept it, and it eventually passed to Bach. Choosing to remain in Hamburg with a nice salary increase due to his negotiations with Leipzig, the composer continued to intertwine himself into the wider intellectual and literary communities of the city, having some of his poems and cantata texts published in a Hamburg anthology of North German poetry. Telemann also increased his self-publishing activities and, in 1737 through 1738, visited Paris to assure his publishing rights there and to further expose his music to the French, who received him with open arms. Between 1740 and 1755, Telemann's musical production began to decline as he turned his attention to a series of theoretical treatises, most of which, however, he never completed. In 1755, at the age of 74, inspired by new texts from a new generation of German poets, Telemann returned enthusiastically to the composition of sacred oratorios. By the way, anyone seeking further information about Telemann's life and career might wish to turn to Grove Music Online, the standard reference work in English from which the Wikipedia entry draws heavily, or Die Musik in der Geschichte und Gegenwart, the standard reference work in German, also available online. Also, the Bachantadas.com site, which I've mentioned a number of times in these episodes as an excellent source for learning about Bach's music, also has a very interesting Telemann biography, as well as an English translation of the composer's most complete autobiographical statement. Now, on to Telemann's actual music. I've mentioned some of the vocal choral genres in which Telemann worked in his life, but the complete list is a very long one, including not only numerous church cantatas, but cantatas for special events, such as consecrations and funerals and the like, passions and passion oratorios, one of which we'll be looking at shortly, other oratorios, sacred and secular, motets, settings of the psalms, masses and magnificats, secular cantatas, operas, and individual opera arias and songs. We'll start by looking at a passion oratorio with a text by Telemann himself, modeled to some degree after the famous Baracus Passion Oratorio I mentioned in a previous episode. 
Georg wrote a number of passions usually intended for performance within the church service, often on Good Friday, and a smaller number of passion oratorios usually performed in church, but not as part of a regular service. The composer seems to have felt less obligation to treat the biblical text strictly in the latter type. Of course, this contrasts sharply with J.S. Bach's approach. He was careful not to deviate from Luther's translation of the Bible when dealing with the biblical narrative itself. But Telemann at times added to, rearranged, or even subtracted from that text fairly freely. At times, he makes no pretense of relating the narrative from beginning to end, but rather provides a number of personal and often quite subjective commentaries on selected events, along with segments of text paraphrased from the biblical narrative. The work we're going to hear a few excerpts from is TWV 5.2, using the widely accepted numbering system from the composer's thematic catalog. Its title is Zeligus Erwagen, its fullest title in English translation rendered as Blessed Contemplation of the Bitter Sufferings and Death of Jesus Christ. This particular work was probably composed in the 1720s, when Telemann was still located in Frankfurt, according to Baroque authority Jean Swack. It was to become one of Telemann's most popular works, with performances in many different German cities into the 19th century. We'll start with a quick look at the opening orchestral introduction. We've seen how wonderfully Bach sums up the entire drama with his introduction to the St. John Passion. But Telemann is not really making an equivalent attempt here. The so-called sonata begins in F major with sustained tones in the upper parts and a moving bass line below. No real sense of foreboding is evident at this point, although the suspended dissonances do add a certain heaviness to the mood. But a little later, when we switch from common time to 3-4, we're introduced to a distinctive new melody which borders on the gallant in its simplicity, shortness of phrases, and use of almost coquettish-sounding triplets. The orchestra employs a pair of shalomo here, that single reed precursor to the clarinet I mentioned earlier. It's an unusual sound, which becomes more prominent later. We don't really expect it, but as Professor Swack and others have pointed out, Telemann in this work makes use of a surprisingly wide array of instruments and tone colors, often used to give a unique coloristic identity to the individual movements.
When the oboe takes over the melody a little later, accompanied by the chalumeau, it does add a little extra sense of poignance. But nevertheless, it's not the type of opening movement one might expect here. Still, it's reasonably clear that Telemann, here and elsewhere in the Passion Oratorio, is not necessarily attempting to evoke the drama of the narrative in every movement. Neither does Bach, in his two major passions for that matter, and for Telemann, it is sometimes more important to hold the listener's attention with graceful, attractive melodies, whether or not the affection of those melodies necessarily contributes to the broader sweep of the drama. That may be, by the way, one reason that Telemann was preferred over Bach when both were competing for the position at Leipzig. Telemann simply had a knack for knowing what would please his audience. The work unfolds in a series of meditations, nine in all, with the first being on the Last Supper. It begins with a chorale. Telemann does make use of them, but they are set quite simply, probably to enable the congregation to sing along. The bass soloist singing the role of Jesus then sings the Adagio aria, titled in English, Good Night, My Dear Ones, with Telemann's first section text restricted to, Good Night, My Dear Ones, My Time is Finished Now. In G minor and 3-4 time, it's somewhat sentimental in style, as one might expect, but represents a reasonable level of solemnity, with some leaps to dissonance in the violin accompaniment adding to the pathos. As the text continues, I must now leave you, the time when I must bear my suffering as a lamb approaches, you must not protest, my time is done now. Here's a brief excerpt. After a brief recitative in Arioso, in which Jesus speaks of the ceremonial drinking of his blood in the form of wine, a devotional aria in de capo form, titled in English, Should I Forget You, is sung by the tenor soloist, with a prominent assist from a pair of soprano recorders, and it represents a significant change in mood. The text for the first section is, Should I Forget You, Dearest Jesus? Ah, uh, no, no, Dearest Jesus. And in the middle section... As your heart nourishes me as a pledge of heaven, I must praise you dearly. Here's an excerpt. Thank you. 
Here, with this aria, Telemann is reminding us of his prowess in negotiating the operatic style, with a guileless but catchy tune that approaches the simpler arias of Mozart's magic flute. We're going to skip over several of the meditations, although all of them contain some worthy music, and focus on the fifth, titled in English translation, The Repentance of Peter. The first thing we're going to hear is an accompanied recitative in which Peter, having betrayed Jesus for the third time, begins to reflect on his actions, singing, Oh, alas, what have I done? What have I begun? What horror have I committed? The abyss opens, and Lucifer terrifies me by saying, You are lost forever because you denied God and conspired against him. Telemann obviously adds to the biblical account somewhat in referencing the threats of Lucifer, but dramatically it's quite effective. The first part of the recitative in F minor is powerfully convincing, and the second, where Peter's forebodings take on a more urgent tone, once again demonstrates Telemann's skill in evoking an almost operatic sense of scene, with flashes of surging chromaticism and a menacing doubling of the melody in the bass line. The music once more evokes Mozart's later magic flute score, in this case, one of the minions of the Queen of the Night, perhaps, and even beyond that to the 19th century operatic style. The aria that follows begins, The whole world is closing in around me who will rescue me from my sins, beginning in F minor, but moving quickly at A flat major initially and then fluctuating regularly back and forth between major and minor. It's more lyrical and introspective, even including some elegant triplets in the vocal line, and it employs a unique coloristic quality due largely to the use of its dual bassoons, often doubling the violins an octave lower. The rhythmic accompaniment becomes more active in the middle section, where the text declares that the tears flowing from my eye only increase the glow of hell, 
and nothing can make me content because I have done so terrible a thing. Here a greater sense of urgency is expressed, but on the whole the mood is more composed and less pathos-ridden than one might expect. Peter's recitative which follows begins in this more meditative style, but soon returns to the greater sense of urgency expressed in his earlier recitative. We'll pass over this to hear just a little bit of the next aria, sung by a soprano representing faith, entitled Tears Witnessed by Faith, or Tears of the Faithful, and which describes how God takes hold of the believer's soul and heart, while demonstrating a particularly long and elaborate vocal melisma on the word zale, or soul. It's another da capo aria, with the middle section dealing with remorse, repentance, and God's graciousness. Faith's aria once again represents a complete change in mood with its florid and elegant style. We'll hear a brief excerpt. Another chorale closes this meditation, which is followed by four more, covering the scourging, crucifixion, death, and internment in the tomb. There's a lot of fine music here and well worth a close look, but we will move on at this point to Telemann's final oratorio, composed in 1762 at the age of 82, entitled Das Tag des Gericht, or The Day of Judgment, or Day of Reckoning written for public rather than liturgical performance, with free poetic texts written by the poet-theologian Christian Wilhelm Ehlers. The oratorio is divided into four parts, often referred to as contemplations or reflections. In the first, the last judgment is ridiculed by the two metaphorical characters unbelief and mocker in a debate with reason. The second part describes the coming of Jesus, the third part recounts the last judgment itself, and the last part is a song of thanksgiving of the righteous. We'll focus on the first part, which begins with a regal French overture. Telemann was a master of this style, and this is one of his finest examples.
The opening chorus of The Devout continues the triumphant yet dignified, mostly homophonic style of the first part of the French overture, beginning with the text, The Lord is coming with a thousand saints to judge all people. We'll hear a little of the beginning. The bass soloist, representing disbelief, then delivers a recitative, breaking into an almost jaunty arioso passage, suggesting that there is nothing to fear from a final judgment, the earth and its elements have gone on for thousands of years, only cowardly slaves fear such an end. Here's a very brief example. Ruft immerhin, des Pöbels Hut zu zähmen, denn ihre Furcht ist euer Gewinn. Ruft immer hin, einst wird die Welt gerende sein, der Elemente Werk vergeht und das Gericht sich offenbaren. The disbelieving bass is nevertheless given a quite attractive aria, in which he urges the listeners to rise up from their fears, stop trembling in the dust. It's in G major and from the orchestral introduction and beyond, contrasts lilting eighth-note triplet figures in the melody with busier responses employing faster-moving sixteenth-note triplets and even flurries of thirty-second notes from the orchestral accompaniment. Rhythmically, it's really quite striking. The soloist's command to rise from the dust finds the melody line not only ascending dramatically, but itself ornamented with thirty-second-note flurries. Vocally speaking, disbelief is really quite belligerent. It's all very extroverted and operatic. In the middle section of the aria, where we go from G major to E minor, and which I'm not going to play, the bass seems a bit more somber-minded musically, although still largely unconvinced as to any danger associated with the impending judgment. But in the da capo repetition of the first section, all hints of uncertainty have again been erased. Disbelief follows this aria with another recitative, 
starting in C major, ending in F major. He has not really changed his tune, and it is unremarkable musically, but we do hear for the first time the alto, representing reason, answer him. She interrupts his rattling on and tells him to be quiet in no uncertain terms, telling him he must stop denying the Son of God and the truth, suggesting that she will employ philosophy to show him the truth. But now the tenor singing the role of the mocker enters, and he is even more flippant than disbelief, mocking all such beliefs. But the mocking tenor is then given a very nice aria in which he celebrates the joys of his specialty. It's in F major, three-four time, and the orchestral ritonello is again very lively with its leaping octaves and rapid descending and later ascending three-note motivic curls heard in the strings, all of which go on to play an important role in the tenor's developing line, although it initially opens up in a more measured manner, picking up momentum as it goes, and alternating rapid motive figures with the string accompaniment. Here's an excerpt starting from the second tenor entrance. Über kluge Köpfe, warum kein Sport, kein bitteres Lachen, euch besser konnte machen. Es täuscht mich euer Gesicht, es täuscht mich euer Gesicht, es täuscht mich euer Gesicht, es täuscht mich, es täuscht mich, es there is again a somewhat contrasting middle section in the relative minor, but we're going to pass over that and allow reason to make her response, which she does first in a recitative, castigating disbelief and asking how is it that the world and the oceans with unbridled power have come to exist. Reason expands on her point, calling on disbelief to witness the powers of nature as evidence of God's hand. See, look, the storm thunders, mountains crumble, in a highly energetic but firmly resolute aria, with a particularly dramatic middle section that again combines a series of distinctive rhythmic patterns, often duple against triple. We'll hear a short excerpt beginning with the entrance of the soloist. But reason does not have the last word in this argument. It is the soprano, singing the role of religion, who delivers the final comments. She begins by agreeing with reason and goes on to add that, just because mankind has avoided judgment to this point, does not mean that it always will. How could God not punish evil and not reward the pious who believe and live justly? The evil despise reason and the Bible, but, 
as she describes in no uncertain terms, they will be punished on the day of judgment, and the believers will be rewarded. We'll conclude this section of the oratorio by hearing some of the final chorus of believers praising God and His majesty in a rousing first section, with a few last warnings about eternal damnation for the doubters in a more contemplative middle section. We're going to leave Telemann's oratorio with one more excerpt taken from part three, which is the Chorus of the Vices. And as reason and religion predicted earlier, things have not worked out well for the vices, and we now find them bemoaning their fate rather dramatically, with mountains falling upon them and the boiling sea threatening to swallow them up. But if the text is a little predictable at this point, the music is not. The vice's extreme discontent is wonderfully expressed by some unstable harmonies and, at times, some rather hair-raising dissonances in the music, unusual for the period. These aren't present from beginning to end, but do recur on a regular basis. This is a famous part of the score, singled out by Professor Swack, among others, and definitely worth a short excerpt. We're going to turn now to a very different sort of composition, although still sacred in nature, a cantata, one of several which Telemann composed for soprano, oboe, and continuo, TWV 1, 1252, for the Sunday after New Year, the title roughly translated as Taste and See Our God's Kindness. We'll take a little closer look at how this one was put together. The opening aria in G minor in common time begins with a ten-bar introduction for oboe and continuo, which introduces the opening bar of the soprano melody to come, and then goes on to a series of rhythmically distinctive motives, often repeated sequentially or in varied form. Here is the introduction. (laughs) 
Repeating the title phrase multiple times in the text, the soprano opens with a continuous three-bar phrase, starting by moving up and down the first three notes of the G minor scale, before moving on to a more complex pattern of stepwise motion and leaps. A new, slower-moving idea is soon introduced, while the oboe responds with a faster-moving melodic theme, based loosely on figures from its introduction. The vocal melody proceeds with a series of sequentially repeated patterns, or variants, of familiar phrases, as Telemann moves first toward C minor and then D minor. Arriving in D minor, the oboe repeats the initial vocal motive, but then moves on to a series of more active phrases heard in earlier exchanges, while the soprano cleverly avoids predictability by occasional offbeat entrances. Elements from the original motives continue to be varied and reinvented in clever ways with the oboe and continuo eventually escorting us to the end of the section in G minor. The contrasting middle section begins in B-flat major, with the soprano presenting a new melodic idea, which is repeated with variation a step higher. At that point, the oboe jumps in, and soprano and oboe trade off similar phrases, with the text referring to the blessing of God's perpetual love for us. Gradually, the soprano's melody becomes more ornate, with flowing melismas reaching higher in her range. This is eventually matched by the oboe that proceeds frequently in sixths along with it. After closing on B-flat, the da capo sign sends us back for a repeat of the first section. The first aria is followed by a conventional but effective recitative. How great is the grace which God's Son extended to us from his throne of honor, which passes into a lovely arioso section with the familiar text, God so loved the world, the oboe leading the way, echoed soon after by the soprano. The phrases become much more elaborate as we proceed in both soprano and oboe, but the pace remains moderate and the music retains a somewhat wistful quality. Finally, an oboe flourish returns us to a recitative proper. Here's an excerpt from this arioso passage.
the second recitative section, urging that man should follow God's example and hold back his anger against others or he will not receive God's grace, eventually delivers us, after some modulatory activity and some effective dramatic gestures, to the final aria in G minor, again in da capo form. This aria, the text of which deals with the horrible pitfalls of cursing your fellow men, with a first line referencing torture and flaming agony, comes off rather like a vengeance aria, impressively bravura in style. Beginning with a lengthy opening statement from oboe and continuo, it starts with a bold descending leap and in general demonstrates a rather military bearing. But it also makes a very effective use of descending chromatic lines built into patterns of repeated sixteenth notes. The soprano then enters with a motive derived from the first oboe motive, but then goes its own way, stopping, starting, and hesitating, often with sequentially repeated motives, against which the oboe inserts its chromatically descending groups of sixteenth notes. On moving to B-flat major, the soprano continues to develop its opening motive against more dramatic ascending triadic figures in the oboe, before finally picking up the oboe's descending chromatic line in a virtuoso display. Let's hear that much before we get too far ahead of ourselves. The middle section, the text of which continues to forecast doom and terror for those who do not restrain their wrath, again starts in the relative major key of B-flat, and there is no letdown in the intensity level with the continual bass immediately pumping out a series of ascending triads in sixteenth notes. The soprano melody initially takes a more measured approach, moving almost sedately up a B-flat scale. But this sense of restraint does not last long. Soon, bass line, soprano, and accompanying oboe also begin passages based on chromatically ascending scales. This soon turns into a torrent of notes and a formidable melisma on the word verjagen, to chase, as if all the tortures of the damned are chasing those who refuse to show compassion. Here's the middle section going into the da capo repeat. Oh, <laughs> 
It's quite a cantata, certainly a flashy one, with abundant special effects in both the vocal line and the accompanying oboe. Is it perhaps lacking a little in terms of the complexity of interaction between soprano and oboe compared to J.S. Bach, or in the subtlety of the word-painting gestures? If it is, it certainly makes up for these things in sheer excitement. And of course, it's impossible to judge Telemann's cantata style by a quick look at a single cantata. The fact is that his numerous cantatas do at times differ from one another stylistically, so it's dangerous to make any judgment on the basis of a single work. And as far as comparisons to J.S. Bach are concerned, it's been widely recounted how some sacred cantatas originally assumed to have been composed by Bach, but which were later determined to be by Telemann, were roundly praised by historians and commentators even some of the same ones who had disparaged Telemann in other contexts. The long and short of it, Bach and Telemann are two different composers, regardless of their overlapping in professional contexts, and Telemann has virtues of his own which do not require any comparisons to give them more luster. We turn now to an opera by Telemann, Pimpinon in German, it is more properly a comic intermezzo, a shorter theatrical work of the type often performed between the acts of a full-length opera seria, in this case interjected into a 1725 performance of Handel's Termolano in Hamburg. It is by no means Telemann's most ambitious operatic work. That honor might go to his setting of the Orpheus legend, a story that has captured the imagination of opera composers from the very beginning. Pimpinone is, like many in its genre, somewhat limited by its cast of only two characters, Vespeta, a cleverly conniving, very ambitious young chambermaid, and Pimpinone, a wealthy, bumbling bachelor with a complete absence of self-awareness. But it is nevertheless a lively work and of some importance historically, since it predates by a few years Pergolesi's considerably more famous La Serva Padrona, which shares with it a number of plot elements. We'll begin with the first aria performed by Vespeta, a soprano. I am employing here an English translation made available by the Texas Early Music Project. Vespeta begins by cheerfully describing her plans for self-advancement in a lilting aria. Who wants me? I am a housemaid who can do everything, everything that's necessary. I am upright, sincere, not greedy or phony, and I can adjust to both good and bad. The phrases are generally short, not especially complex, although allowing for bits of modest vocal display, and there's a fair amount of repetition, of course. That's all part of the comic opera style, not just in the mid-1720s, but for some time after that. I'm going to leave out most of the recitatives, 
all seiko, just harpsichord accompaniment, and with fast-moving melodies tied closely to natural speech patterns. But I'll play a little of this next one, in which she announces that she's looking to make her fortune, but she wants to do it honestly. She sees Mr. Pimpernon coming, a man she describes as not actually of noble blood, but rich and dumb. He might be the perfect man for me. Mr. Pimpernon enters grumbling. He thinks that everyone is trying to take advantage of him, so he must be on his guard. But now, as he comes on the scene, he catches a glimpse of Vespeta and says, If only I could get hold of a lovely girl to be my maid, that would delight me no end. Vespeta says to herself, Ah, if only I could work for him. He says, Ah, if only she would find me attractive. And they go on to have a bit of a recitative exchange. Pimpinone says, How prettily you walk. Vespeta replies, I learned that from the dancing instructor who taught my mistress. She must be a noble woman. What? Noble? No. Music and dancing are all the rage everywhere. Here's a part of that recitative. Ich suche zwar ein Glück, doch ehrlich zu erlangen und durch den sauren Schweiß ein kleines Heiratsgut. Ach, Herr Pippinone könnt gegangen. Er ist zwar nicht von edlem Blut, doch reich und dumm. Das wäre ein guter Herr für mich. Geduld, vielleicht erfüllt es sich. Ein Reicher ist in Wahrheit übel dran. Es sucht ihn jedermann zu hintergehen. Mein Haus soll künftig nicht so vielen offen stehen. Könnt ich ein artiges Kind zum Kammermädchen kriegen, wird es mich ungemein vergnügen. Wie kann ich nicht des Betten hier erblicken? Ach, stöhn dich eben doch an. Ach, käme sie zu mir. Wie Sie gerne wollte ich mich in ihre Weise schicken. Mein artiges Kind, wie geht es ihr? Ach, ihr Gnaden zürnen nicht, ich habe sie in Wahrheit nicht gesehen. <lacht> wie artig weiß sie doch den Fuß und Leib zu drehen. Der Meister, so die Frau im Tanzen und am Lesen, war mir Vespede explains in her next aria that Polite discourse, lovely singing, clever card playing, nimble dancing are the pastime of charming ladies. However, she adds, spinning, sewing, knitting come a lot closer to tedious housework. They're only for common housewives. You'll notice that her little demonstration of lovely singing has a few little virtuoso touches here and there. Pimpinone is understandably impressed by this, and they go on in a recitative to discuss her former employer 
and why she left her position. She equivocates somewhat on this point, and he says, how much better it would be to work for a man, and she seems to agree, tossing in a few flattering remarks at the end. His response to this in an aria is sung as an aside, but it's clear that she hears every word of it, in which he expresses his confusion over the matter. I'm all tied up in knots. She's trying to confuse me with her politeness. I don't know how to answer, he says. Wie sie mich ganz verwirren kann. Wie sie mich ganz verwirren kann. Oder besser verwirren kann. Ja, Jungfer, ja, ja, mit allzu vielen Höflichkeiten. Ja, ja, mit allzu vielen Höflichkeiten. Mit allzu vielen Höflichkeiten. Still, he gets sufficient possession of himself to engage in a negotiation with Vespeta and he offers her the job in the next joint recitative. She says, I am humbled by such an honor, while he states, housekeeping shall no longer trouble my head. I'll skip over this recitative and move on to the next duet, where they celebrate their mutual good fortune. He says, I feel a glow with happiness, but also, that's enough compliments. And she, my spirits are soaring in my breast, although, under her breath, she adds things like, Ye gods, I'll burst out laughing, and he's a total nincompoop. Mein Herz erfreut sich in der Brust. Und doch die Seele mir verlust. Lass uns gehen. Komm nun. Komm nun, lass uns gehen. Komm nun. Komm nun, lass uns gehen. Bis Petra. Bis Petra. Komm, komm nun. And so ends Act 1. Since our two characters constitute a serious mismatch in terms of wit and resourcefulness, you can well imagine how things will develop in Act 2. Vespeta threatens to leave Pimpinone because she cannot possibly do all of the housework tasks she is assigned to do and therefore feels herself to be grievously overworked. From now on, she announces insolently, you should do your own housework. But then she immediately changes tactics and sings an emotional little arioso, completely lacking in sincerity, of course, stating, in the short time I've spent in your service, if I ever failed you, I ask your forgiveness. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Needless to say, Pimpinon falls for this act completely and is quickly reassuring Vespeta, quiet, quiet, you're doing everything just fine. After another brief negotiation, Pimpinon, who is desperate to keep Vespeta, agrees to give her the keys to the house and even his money chest if she will stay with him. Vespeta continues to mock him in frequent asides, how blind the old man really is, and argues with him regarding the proper use of his money. She is appeased, however, when it turns out that he has bought something for her, a little pair of earrings. Then, as a token of his sincerity, Pimpinon launches into a famous aria, singing, Look, look for a second into these ardent eyes, and in them you'll see, dear treasure, that you are Pimpinon's little Pim, 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 Pimpinina. <laughs> It may not possess quite the melodic charm of the famous Papageno Papagena duet in Mozart's Magic Flute, but the similarities are unmistakable, and the aria is very effective in this context. But Vespeta is far from finished manipulating poor overmatched Pimpinon. She points out that a scandal might arise from the fact that an attractive young woman like her is living in a bachelor's house. After further negotiations, Vespeta gets her wish, and as Act Two draws to a close, it is determined that she will become his wife. In Act Three, Pimpinon is quite pleased about this new development, even as his new wife continues to insult him behind his back, but the marriage does not run smoothly. Vespeta requires more and more freedom, and Pimpinon is finally beginning to catch on to the fact that he has been played. When she announces that she is going over to her godmother's house, he says, you want to run over there to say nasty things about your husband. He then sings a wonderful aria, the last one we're going to hear, in which he takes the part of three different characters in a dialogue, the abused husband, that is himself, the weepy wife, and the gossipy wife. He begins as the abused husband, singing, I know what they're saying and doing. Then in falsetto, as the gossipy wife, Darling, dearie, how are you? Then as the weepy wife, Oh, all right. As the husband, and then suddenly we hear, as the gossipy wife, My husband's such a spendthrift and so thoughtless. He thinks I ought to stay home all day long. And the weepy wife says, 
He is such a great brute. You should do what I do, dear. Mine wants his own way, too, but I've made him see things my way. I've discovered the secret to get him to say, as the husband, no, as the weeping one, yes, yes, as husband, I know what they're doing. Here's an excerpt. Ah! Ich weiß, wie man's macht. Beerdeste Gefahrterin, wie geht es ihr? Wie geht es ihr? Danke leidlich, danke leidlich. Und dann geht es los. Was ist mein Mann so wunderlich unbeschränkt davon lang, dass der Haus ich bleiben soll? Alle Tag, alle Tag. Wie beschränkt davon lang, dass der Haus ich bleiben soll? Alle Tag. Ich weiß, wie man's macht. Beerdest die Hecke, Vaterin? Wie geht es ihr? Wie geht es ihr? Danke leidlich, danke leidlich. Und dann geht es los. Was ist mein Mann so wunderlich unbeschränkt? Ja, mein Mann so wunderlich unbeschränkt. Er verlangt, dass zu Hause ich bleiben soll. Alle Tag, alle Tag. Wie beschränkt er verlangt, dass zu Hause ich bleiben soll. Alle Tag. Vesper sings another aria in which she describes her desire to do what other ladies do and exercise complete freedom. When Pippinone reminds Vespeta how at one time she had been more attentive to him and wanted to please him, she replies, When I promised you that, I was still your maid. Now I'm your wife, so button your lip. Soon things between them break down even further and open warfare erupts. But in the end, he yields to her in all matters and the intermezzo comes to a close. We're going to conclude this episode with another cantata, and it's really one in a class by itself. It's the so-called canary cantata, or cantata or funeral music, for an artistically trained canary bird whose demise brought the greatest sorrow to his master. Composed around 1737, probably on commission, the work is often assumed to be tongue-in-cheek, and is many times performed in that manner, but much of the cantata appears to express authentic emotion nonetheless. The text for the opening aria is, Oh, alas, 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 my canary is dead. To whom can I bemoan my misery? To whom can I bemoan my bitter sorrow? Who will take this grief to heart with me? To whom can I bemoan my misery? Mein Kanari ist tot. Oh weh, oh weh, mein Kanari ist tot. Oh weh, mein Kanari ist tot. Oh weh, mein Kanari ist tot. Oh weh. 
That's it for this episode. We've obviously barely scratched the surface in terms of an overview of Telemann's vocal music, but I hope it may inspire you to pursue his music further. We will be doing a Part 2 episode focusing on the composer's instrumental music, but before we get to that, we're going to have an episode taking a look at a pair of Bach's cantatas for Christmas Day.